Welcome to this week's sermon from Amoka Christian Centre. Thanks, Tim. Good morning. I wasn't here for the first two uh, sermons in this series because um, I, I had COVID, but I've been catching up this week. And um, both Adrian's introduction and, and Tim's kind of opening talk were excellent, really. So I'll just recommend if you haven't uh, heard them, it's kind of worth your time catching up. It's, it's normally worth, it's not always worth your time catching up. In this case... <laughs> It's worth your time catching up and um, it's a bit intimidating to follow them really. So I'm going to try and lower the bar a few metres so that those who come after me feel a little bit better. Um, When Adrian Adrian spoke a few weeks ago, he kind of explored a bit the culture we live in and talked a lot about um, how dominated it is by a kind of aggressive individualism and spent some time explaining what that means, but also pointing out that the kingdom of God is in... um, kind of huge contrast to that and uh, our aim in this series um, for those of you who kind of missed that introduction our aim in this series is to explore um, how the life that God calls us to is about more than me in contrast to the individualism of our culture and to do that by um, looking at Old Testament legal texts So hopefully we learn a little bit more about the community we're meant to be, but we also learn how to better read those parts of our Bibles that we um, may be tempted to skip through when we're doing our Bible in a year reading plans. Um, And today we'll be looking at some law that was to do with property and uh, assets and inheritance, the Jubilee legislation. And there are, I think, some interesting principles for us today. But to really make the most of that text, we need to spend five minutes or so just getting our heads around some context, Uh, both context of us in our culture and the context of the text we're going to read. So I have a PowerPoint, is it? There it is. There we go. So I've tried to kind of pop just the key points on so you can follow me as I go along. So first of all, let's talk a bit about our context. Um, You know, I am aware that as a teaching team, we have taught a lot about our context in the last few years. And uh, our whole church teaching, particularly uh, last summer, I taught on a public hope, spent a long time trying to um, explain and explore liberalism and its dominance in our mindsets. Tim, earlier this year, did whole church teaching on God and culture. Adrian sort of talks about it every time he preaches to us, but especially a couple of weeks ago. He's watching this morning, so that's, I can say that. And the reason really is that we're convinced that um, we're only really able to change if we're aware of where we're starting from. You know, if, we don't, if we're not aware of the, the assumptions that we carry and the way we've been formed, it's very difficult to choose something different. And that's why we've kind of made such a focus of it, really. And it's true that most people don't go around through their weeks kind of thinking about liberalism or um, how their postmodern culture is shaping them. But then most people aren't trying to pursue a kind of alternative community in a different way of life. So we do need to be the people that are kind of willing to do that, to do that hard work, that hard thinking, that wrestling. We need to be those who, as Jesus said, kind of understand the signs of the times, kind of aware of what we're in, so we can um, follow him. 
Today, teaching on property and economics, I'm not going to kind of repeat everything Adrian said a few weeks ago. I just want us to note that the kind of dominant big idea, to use Adrian's helpful phrase, the dominant big idea of our culture with all of this stuff is the kind of collection of ideas that we might call capitalism. And uh, I'm not going to kind of lecture on capitalism this morning. Um, but uh, to put it simply, kind of capitalism is a collection of ideas that really hold that the best thing for each of us to do whenever we're buying or selling, lending or working, that the best thing to do is to pursue our own best interest at all times. And uh, the idea is that in a kind of free market with a number of caveats, if this is the case, this will be the best thing for society as a whole is when we pursue our best interest. The kind of guiding principle, essentially, is um, individual kind of selfishness and working for private profit. And Adrian has, spoke, has spoken a bit about that a few, a few weeks ago. So I just want to add kind of two particular ways I think that capitalist worldview tends to shape us each when we think about possessions. I'm not here to critique capitalism per se, I just want to notice how it shapes us, okay? So first of all, I think that it encourages us to um, think of, our, of ourselves as responsible for us, but not really for other people. I think that's one way that it forms us. Um, you know, you might remember there's no such thing as society. And that, but really, this isn't about a kind of right-wing or left-wing political idea. This is kind of wherever you are on the political spectrum, we're generally formed in our culture to be responsible for ourselves to a degree, but not really for other people. And the second way it forms us, I think, is that we're all crystal clear that when it comes to wealth and possessions, what we have is ours. <laughs> and we own it. And we should have the right to control how we use it and what we do with it. We, we sort of accept various bits of taxation. But essentially, um, these are my possessions to use in whatever way I see fit. I think it's hard to argue that that kind of characterises each of us most weeks. So there's some of our context. Now let's deal with a little bit of context of the Old Testament law. And we're going to be looking at Leviticus 25, by the way, just to give you the reference early if you, if you kind of want to get the text up. I'll give you another chance in a minute. The laws in the Old Testament, we have to understand them for what they are, which is laws. <laughs> you can't read them the same way you read the kind of narratives about Abraham or the poems of the Psalms or the prophetic Books. It's a different kind of writing. These were actual laws that were meant to be applied to order the Israelite society. So if we kind of want to make sense of, well, why, why is the law like this? We have to understand the society it was trying to order. And here's three things I think we need to know to make sense of what we'll read today. So first of all, we need to know that Israel was an agrarian society. And that word agrarian simply means that the vast majority of people lived in the countryside and were farmers. So the vast majority of people uh, worked the land. That was what they did. And um, for almost all of them, they worked the land to grow enough food to feed their family and their household. And that was kind of a good year. If you had any surplus, you might trade it. 
or, or you might try and sell it for a profit. But, and you, you know, you'd have some people who were artisans and whatever, and a few people that lived in cities, but pretty much, pretty much everyone in society um, really was a farmer. And this also meant that um, this was the way you acquired wealth. So to be rich in Israel was to have more land to farm. So you might think, for example, in the Old Testament stories, when it says that Abraham was a rich man towards the end of his life, what does it tell us? It tells us how many cows he had and what his livestock was and how many servants he had. Because the more servants you had, the more land you could farm and the more stuff you could grow. So to, to have a lot of land was how you were um, rich or wealthy. Second thing we need to know, and this can be a bit uncomfortable for us if we haven't thought it through before, but Israel, like the rest of that region at the time, uh, was also a slave society. Because wealth came from working the land, you needed people to work your land to grow in wealth. And often those people, uh, that extra labour, if you like, came from um, slaves. It was common in the region. After all, we, knew, we know, don't we, the, Jew, the Jews themselves were slaves in Israel, in Egypt, sorry, slaves in Egypt for 400 years before the exodus and before they became free. So slavery was common, um, but it was also kind of highly variable. No doubt, um, a, a fair amount of the time, slavery was just the simple, brutal exploitation of other people's labour. Um, but there were also other forms of slavery that were uh, different to that, but more analogous to kind of permanent hired labour um, or shared households, and we'll, we'll see some of that in the passage we'll read today. But we need to know that to make sense of what we're going to read. And the final thing that we have to bear in mind is to remember that the land of Israel was originally given to them by God. When we read through the Old Testament, this is the constant rhetoric, was I am giving you this land to live in as an inheritance for you and your children. It was a promise to Abraham, which God then fulfilled. So we'll come back to those ideas, but I hope that gives us enough um, foundations to make sense of the text that we'll now read together. Okay? So let's turn to Leviticus 25. We won't read the whole chapter. We're going to just read these verses that I've put on the board. On the board? Sorry, on the screen. I'm not at school. So I'll read them three together. I'm going to read from the ESV version, but it doesn't matter if yours is different. Hopefully they'll be similar enough. So the law says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, where each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat of the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbour or buy from your neighbour, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbour according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. 
And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it's the number of crops that he is selling you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And then skip down to verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then he himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he has sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. And then finally, skip down to verse 35. This moves from the land to how we treat people. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and gave you the land of Canaan and to be your God, to give to you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Okay. Keep that in front of you, um, because I will dip back into it. What's going on in these laws then? Well, the big idea, the big idea of these laws is a communal reset every 50 years. Yeah, a communal reset every 50 years. There was to be a reset of the land and the reset of the people. And uh, the rest of the chapter, including the bits that we haven't read, give kind of some of the details for this. But the assumption was that over time, uh, some... Israelites would do better and others would do worse. Some would prosper, others would become poor. And there'd be a natural buying and selling of land that would be uh, appropriate. But every 50 years, this whole process would be reset. Each family would return to its original inheritance. Say, can we pop the map up, the the, the map up, please? I think it might be the next slide. Say, this is a kind of, uh, to be honest, I picked it because it was colourful and bold, so you can see the divisions. But this is, a, this is a map of how the land was divided up into the 12 tribes. And within each tribe, kind of say, right in the middle, you see um, Manasseh, and in the top right-hand corner. So that was the sort of tribal land. But then within the tribal land, the, each clan and family group would have their own bit of that um, and that was meant to be a gift for that clan family uh, forever. And so the idea is, as bits and pieces of land are bought or sold, every 50 years, it's returned to those who were originally meant to have it. 
And that's why, kind of in the legislation, verses kind of 13 to 17, it says, well, if you're going to sell some land, you have to work out how many years it is till the Jubilee. Because that's kind of how much... If it's only two years till the Jubilee, it's not worth very much, because in two years' time, it's going back. If it's 40 years till the Jubilee, it's worth a lot, because you're buying 40 years of crops. But whatever you buy and sell, after 50 years, it gets given back. And so also for those who have to sell themselves into slavery or into labour. You know, back in that world, if, um, if you became poor and sold yourself to me as a slave, then at some point I uh, might release you. But if you've had any children whilst you're with me, they're mine, because slavery was the sort of ownership of people. But if you see here in the legislation, the kind of last bit we've read... God says, well, first of all, you don't treat each other as slaves. You treat each other as strangers. You offer them hospitality. You go out of your way to care for them. And then you don't uh, abuse them. You don't take any interest. You don't look for profit. What you do is you employ them to work so that they can afford to keep living. That's what you should do. And when the year of Jubilee comes, you not only let them go, but you let all their family go as well. And, And there's a reset people as well. So that's the kind of big idea of what's going on here. Utterly radical for its, for, for its time, for the region. And within, it's radical because what these laws enshrine certain principles, don't they? There's principles underpinning these laws. Why is this happening? Why is God saying do this? What's going on? And these are the three principles that I think can actually um, uh, kind of inform us as we think about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. So the first principle, I think, is that um, God wants there to be, or wanted there to be in this society, a regular redistribution of the means of wealth. Not of the, the wealth itself per se. This wasn't a kind of taxation system. There were other laws for taxation about, you know, how much of your crops you have to give to X, Y, Z. But this is the means of creating wealth. And this kind of makes it clear, I think, that God did not intend for individual Israelites or individual families to be able to endlessly accumulate and hoard land. And what normally happens in agrarian societies, if someone does well, they buy more land, and then, of course, they do better and they buy more land, and you end up with a few people owning loads of land and everyone else kind of working as slaves come hired labour. So you might remember in the prophets, Isaiah says things like, woe to you who add field to field and join. Woe to you who move boundary stones. That's what all this is about. The boundary stones say this family begins to Manasseh, blah, 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 blah. Woe to you who move those stones and say, I take, I take this land as mine forever. I'm dig- I digress. Um, It was expected that those who did well would buy land and keep it for a while, but the point is it was only for a while. This was a temporary situation. And um, perhaps a helpful way to think about it is that every generation, every generation at some point has the chance to start again. So if you're a kind of child when the Jubilee kicks in, you might be kind of in your late 40s when it happens again. That's still an age where you're able to have a go, make something of it. Um, So every generation gets a chance to start again. You know, it's interesting that thinking in our own context, we can come to terms with progressive taxation. 
um, you know, the idea that those who have more money pay more tax. But this is dealing with assets, not income. Um, come back to that thought in a bit. The second principle, the second the, the justification for these laws is what we see in verse 33. Verse 33 says, I don't mean verse 33, I mean verse 23. Verse 23 says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. It's mine. The land can't be bought or sold forever because it's God's. It doesn't belong to the people who are doing the buying or doing the selling. God says, really, you're strangers, sojourners, you're, you're travellers, you're wanderers with me. It's my land. You happen to be on it. Another way to think of this is that the Israelites were not owners, they were stewards. They were stewards. You know, if somebody said to you, right, it's been 50 years, I know that your family has acquired a fair number of properties and some stocks and shares and a good amount of assets, well done, we're now going to take all that away, redistribute it to those who haven't got any, and you can start with your house again. Can you imagine? Like our internal response would be, it's not fair. That's not fair. And why would we think that? Why would we think it's not fair? Because it's mine. <laughs> I have, we have acquired these things. They belong to us. It's not fair to take them away. And God kind of undermines all of that because it's not yours. <laughs> It's not a question of fair, it's not yours, it's mine. The land belongs to me. And of course, you know, um, we, we tend to kind of process these as a bit of a like, oh, that must be hard for those who had a lot of stuff. But it's also a massive comfort for those who, you know, it's very easy to lose your land. When you're a farmer, you get, you get sick, you lose a leg, that's it. You're not going to be able to work your land, you have to sell it. These things happen all the time. So there's also a massive comfort that says no matter what happens, your stewardship of the land is actually secure because it belongs to God. And no matter what happens to you, the next generation is going to get another chance. So there's a massive comfort in those laws as well. Wealth and poverty are both problems that God's ownership starts to address. And we'll return to that thought at the end as well. Final principle that I think we see in these laws. Um, you know, if, this, if the land doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. Um, to be honest, we can also see that these laws show that God clearly considers the um, prosperity of the community as a whole far more important than any individual's prosperity. That's just how it is, really. Whether that's the land or the laws about how to treat fellow Jews who have become so poor they need to work for someone else, the law constantly commands Israel to live for the good of the community. You know, fear the Lord your God and do this properly. Treat one another well. Take no interest or profit from him, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You know, God essentially says, if, if you kind of read it all the way through a couple of times, he sort of says, look, you were slaves in Egypt. <laughs> the land belongs to me. I rescued and redeemed you as a whole people. So when you are dealing with buying and selling land, when you're treating, um, when you're dealing with kind of having to employ um, your fellow Israelites, for goodness sake, treat them properly because I haven't saved you. I've saved, I've saved the entire nation. That's who I've delivered. That's who I've given the land to. It's not about you. It's about 
It's about the whole people. That's my least paraphrase anyway of, of, um, of that chapter. So where does this leave us then? Um, kind of if we try and say, okay, that, that law is for them, an agrarian society, we're not an agrarian society. A slave society, we're not a slave society. How does this stuff kind of translate to us? You know, we don't live in a nation where kind of everyone's under the rule of God. So how, you know, where does this start to land? I hope it's kind of obvious that this is a totally different set of principles to the ones that um, most of us have who have grown up in our culture. We think our stuff's ours, but it's not. It's God's. We think we're owners, but we're not. We're stewards. You know, I really hope that in our church family, because, you know, we've taught on this a couple of years ago, didn't we? I hope we're um, increasingly learning to ask the right question. And not of my money, what am I going to give to God? That's an inappropriate question because it's not yours. (laughs) The appropriate question is, of God's money, which he's given to me to steward, how how much am I going to spend on myself? That's a a kind of far more appropriate question. I hate that's becoming kind of second nature to us to at least think in those terms now. Um, In Proverbs chapter 30, uh, we have this prayer where the author prays, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You know, it's clear, it's clear in the Bible that poverty is no, is no good thing. It's a dehumanizing evil. Because creation is good and we were made to enjoy it, Poverty is an offence against the creator God, really. Poverty is a situation where somebody is not able to enjoy the goodness of creation. And I'm going to be teaching about this um, towards the end of the month in the next whole church teaching on pleasure. So poverty is a problem. Um, But excessive wealth is just a bigger problem before God. Um, You know, if it's about more than us, And if all things belong to God, then, you know, which of us has the right to spend excessively on ourselves when others in the community face hardship? So neither poverty nor riches. A bit like our daily bread, really, isn't it? Give us our daily bread, what we need. It's not about me. It's about us. These are not my possessions, my money, my assets. They're first of all God's, they're second of all ours, and they're third of all mine to steward. It's a very different way to think, but this is the kingdom of God, actually. This is the kingdom of God. It, it can feel uncomfortable, but the more you live into it, it starts to feel incredibly liberating. To, be, to, to live in a world where I steward what is God's rather than have to kind of own what's mine. Starts to set us free, really. Jesus knew, he talked about it all the time. So I'm going to apply this in two concrete ways for us as we finish. Two things you can go away and do with this. 
And here they are. So first of all, I, I don't know anything about what you guys give away, obviously. But I also, just to be clear, I don't know anything about what you give to church either. I'm sort of spared that, fortunately. There's only one or two people who do. A couple of our directors for kind of um, just our financial administration purposes. Which gives me the freedom to say, <laughs> when was the last time you had a proper chat with God about your own money and assets and possessions? Are you giving away as much as he would have you give? Or perhaps the better way to say it is, are, are you keeping for yourself the amount that he would have you keep for yourself? If you're new to following Jesus, if, it, you know, if you're kind of fairly new to faith or new to thinking about following Jesus with your money, then it can be helpful to know that many Christians throughout the centuries have um, taken giving 10% of their income as a starting point and as a rule of thumb if they're not sure what to do. So for you, that might be helpful if, if you're not sure what to do and this is all new to you. That's, that has been a kind of starting point for Christians for centuries and you may want to think about that. But if you're not new to following Jesus, if you've been around a while, then um, you should know that that isn't the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus with our money. And, um, you know, it's much more about surrendering what we have to Jesus and trying to be obedient to him. And that may mean giving away a lot more than 10%. So, why don't we make sure that each of us has a serious conversation with God about this in the next week or so. That's a concrete thing you can do with this talk. Yeah. None of us at church are going to tell you what to give. It doesn't work like that. Following Jesus doesn't work like that because it's following him. It's not about finding someone else and saying, oh, well, they do this, so I'll copy that and it'll be fine. Why don't you go have a serious chat with God and, you know, talk with your Christian friends? That's fine as well. But let's all do that in the next week, shall we? That's... Lord, am I living into the kingdom of God with the resources you've given me to steward? I'll do it as well. We'll, We can all do it. And here's a second way, even more concrete. We, We lit the candles earlier this service to remember Ed. I'm aware there's a few new people here. Ed Lowe was a member of our church family. He died two weeks ago. And he left behind his wife, Kate, and, her, and their two young children. You know, Kate is our sister, isn't she? She's one of our community. And she's lost a lot in losing Ed. Um, but one of the things she's lost very concretely is his income. Um, Ed was self-employed. And uh, one of the challenges that she's going to face over the coming months are the practical challenges about how to manage um, with the sudden loss of that income. Now, between us in the room and us who are watching online, we steward an awful lot of God's resources, don't we? Like we have a lot of money between us. And if it's God's and not ours, and if it's ours and not ours, then I think one of the things we might want to think about doing is passing on some of God's resources to our sister in the day of her distress. Why don't we give her some money? So the second thing that you might want to do with this talk is to go and have a look at your savings account 
see how much of God's money you're currently looking after and then ask him how much of it he would have you pass on to Kate. It'd be great if we could all do that. And um, we'll send out an email in the week ahead with a bit of practical guidance of how we might do that. You know, we, um, we as a church give to all kinds of charities, support all kinds of needs. We have a hardship fund. Um, so some of you will be really used to, you know, oh, when, when we want to do something like this, how we do it. But many of you won't. So we'll send out an email in the coming weeks with a bit of guidance about how we do that. If you've got any questions, um, John Cook, give us a wave. Is probably the best person to talk to you kind of oversees our finances as a church family. But you can talk to any of us on staff. I'm sure we can. Well, to be honest, we'll give you John's email address and he'll sort you out. <laughs> but that's the second thing that we could do with this. Okay. Why don't, why don't we stand together? I'll pray. Lord, some of um, your truth, Jesus, you said that when we know the truth, when we do what you command, we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. And Lord, some of your truth that sets us free, we can only really know from the inside. We can't look from the outside and say, oh, it feels really liberating to give up ownership of my possessions and start giving away radically out of my money. But from the inside, when we take steps of faith to live in line with your kingdom, it does set us free, Lord. So what I want to pray for our church family is not that the things I've said today would make them feel guilty, would make any of us feel guilty, but that we would hear an invitation in this to a different way of life. Lord, we, we became Christians because we, we loved you and we wanted something different. And you offer us something different in these things. Lord, give us the courage to step into it. That we might know the joy and the pleasure and the freedom of living, of living your way. And help us, Lord, because it's so hard because we get anxious, because we've grown up in however we've grown up, and because it's not always straightforward. So help us, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Amoka Christian Centre. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website www.amicochristiancentre.org.uk